Before we get into um, this, this morning's teachings, uh, I just really had a sense of, I'd just like to pray before we come to God's word, just with that sense of there's been a lot of, and I don't want to ignore this, there's been a lot of heart issues really mentioned this morning there, where that's been loss, um, where that's been uh, hatred or disquiet in our hearts, or whether that is um, dealing with pain and grief and things like that. And, and what I'd love to do is all of us have things that we are carrying um, and we bring that with us <laughs> into Sunday morning gatherings as we walk through life. And all I'd love to do is to um, offer that over to Jesus, the one who was crucified on the cross, who by his stripes and by his wounds, we are healed. And so I believe he has healing and forgiveness for us and all of that. So I just want to pray for that. And I do want to encourage you, if you're here and those are things that you are struggling with, there will be some people who will be here to pray. They love to spend time um, offering up your hurts and your pain to Jesus. And he is the one who can bring hope and can bring healing. And so I'd urge you, as we pray now, that's just the beginning of a journey. If you want someone to talk to or to pray with, please make a veil of that at the, at the end. But let, let's pray as we come to his word. I said, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for what you have done for us on the cross. Thank you that by your wounds we are healed. Thank you that right now you're not just sitting in heaven waiting around. You're interceding at the right hand of our Father in heaven. And so we just simply want to leave before you are the things that are bothering us. Uh, whether that is disquiet in our souls, whether that's a lack of forgiveness towards others, whether that is grief and hurt and pain, whether that's a feeling of hopelessness, we lay that at your feet. We ask it through the power of your spirit. You would revive hope in our hearts again as we come to you, even if that's just the beginning of that journey this morning, Lord. Father, I pray that as we come to your word, we want to give you thanks for it. We want to thank you how it is alive and still speaking to us through the power of your spirit. And Lord, I pray that as we come this man. Um, if you weren't here last week, uh, what, all I want to say to you is that we have just begun a series, a mini-series for the uh, month of January, looking at the book of Jeremiah. Um, I, I will do a little recap in a moment. But I just want to challenge you in all that. How has this week been going for you as you have sat in the book of Jeremiah? As you have maybe sat with some of those challenges that we laid down last week. Um, this call back that we had at the end. This call back that we, are, that we have right now to be a people who are devoted. Who are wholeheartedly following Jesus. To see him as their first love in our lives individually and as a church family. Um, I just want to explain, and we'll explain a little bit more of this next week as well, that little, um, the title of this series, this Kairos moment. Kairos is a word in scripture, a Greek word that means uh, an opportune moment, a right or a critical moment in time. 
And what I really believe, and I'm just going to whet your appetite for this where we're going next week, I believe the Lord is offering at this time to us as his people an intimacy like we have never tasted before. A relationship with him that is so deep and so passionate that it just will naturally overflow from us. But that's what we won't even be interested in. We'll just be so filled with an awe of who he is, with a love for him. I believe he's, and particularly there is an opportunity in this year where he is opening the door for us to walk through that together. And I simply lay that challenge down to us. Are you ready to walk through this together? This is not just about some of us. This is all of us have this opportune moment to step into this. And so I say again, have you got into Jeremiah this week? This is not legalism. This is saying to you, there's something that is there you can taste and see that you've never seen or tasted before. And so I encourage you, get into it, please. Like I said last week, it is not about me just offering you my seconds. There is beautiful truth that the Lord wants to speak to you individually about and to us as a church family. And some of you have been getting in touch this week, and thank you for that, just to hear the first fruits of what has been happening in the life of our church family, and I long for more of that. It's not too late for you to step into this. Go back and listen to next week if you need to, if you missed it, or if you're here for the first time. Hey, if you're here just visiting, then I'd encourage you, it's just a short series. I believe this is something the Lord is not just for us as a church family, but it's something for his people. So I want to give you a little bit of a quick recap um, of where we're at. I encouraged you last week to bring a Bible along with you. What I would encourage you to do right now is whether that's switch it on or bring it with you um, and it's physical. Open it up at Jeremiah chapter 2 because that is where we're going to be at today. But as we do that, I want to give you a little bit of a quick recap of where we were at. Jeremiah is a book that is written to a world that is very similar to ours. It's a world that was filled with um, evilness and hopelessness for generations. But the moment that we um, saw last week at the beginning of this is a moment where God rises up two young men called Josiah and Jeremiah because he would not forget his covenant promise to, to have this relationship. He was not going to break his part of the deal in all of this. So he rises up these two young men, Josiah and Jeremiah. Josiah focuses on restoring the worship of the nation. So that's an outer reformation. It's the worship structures. It's the temple worship. It's the removing of other gods and putting the Lord God, Yahweh, as number one in our lives. But that only takes us to a certain place in relationship with him, because that's what he's longing for. And so he had to rise up Jeremiah at the same time to see, alongside this outer reformation, an inner revival of our hearts. And that's what Jeremiah is calling out the people to. And that's what I believe is the invitation for us as a people as we read this, this calling back to restoring the Lord as our first Love as a church here in this country. A couple of things I want to note before we get into today's passage. Jeremiah is just repeating, this is nothing new, he's just repeating the challenge that has gone in the generations before. And that's important. It's just the same thing that Isaiah has been saying, it's the same thing that Micah is saying. They all might word it in different ways and, and, and a different, um, unique points in it all but it's all the same thing calling people back into relationship a loving relationship with the Lord it's not the first time they've been challenged in this and yet there's been no difference in their lives and I really sensed as I've sat with us this week 
the challenge for us at this time as a church family. I want you to hear this challenge. See, we live in a world that is filled with new content and fresh content. We are content consumers. It's all about new vlogs and blogs and what's new. Oh, I've heard that before. (laughs) Give me something new. What I sense the Lord saying to us at this time is, what are you going to do with what I've already spoken to you about? Has it changed your hearts? What about last year's sermons? What about last year's sharing times? What about last year's home group times? Do we really believe that God was speaking through them? Because I do. And he was doing that in the context of community. What about when God spoke through John Mark to us in the series of Mark and he's called us to not just be fans of Jesus, but to be followers. Has it made a difference in our lives? What about when Jeanette a couple of years ago this was, spoke at the beginning of the year for us not to just see what is going on with our carnal eyes, but to see what is going on with the spiritual eyes, what's going on in the unseen realms. Did that make a difference in your life? What about when Matt challenged us before Christmas about this beauty of who God is, that he is God with us, and that that should change our every day when we are aware of his presence with us. Has it made any difference? What about when Ryan, I'm just sharing a few things that really challenged me. What about when Ryan Galway, Claire and Ryan are back in Cumber now. What about when he challenged us not to be just the people who are virtue signalers, but if we believe in something, we live it out like we mean it. Has it changed us, church? If you can say, honestly, looking back, it hasn't made one iota of difference in your life, then what I want to say to you is, church, you're a content consumer. You're interested in change. And it needs to change. Our hearts need to change. We need to be renewed and reformed and revived to be the genuine representation of his heart that this nation is crying out for. And it may take us to have a childlike faith to do that. Do you remember where we were at the end of last week as well? And I'm, I'm wanting to give this taste of this because I don't want us to move on before we get the sense of what God's saying. Revelation 2, did you read that this week? The challenge that God gives to his people in the church at Ephesus. How are we going to respond to the Lord's challenge as he speaks to us through that MCF? Is it okay if we just do good things as a church and be recognized by people for that? Maybe even recognized for the Lord. And he says, that's good. But what does it feel like if, what if we may have just heard from him right in all of this and he's asking us and saying to us, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Now, I don't want you to mishear me whenever I talk about that, okay? That is not a harking back to the good old days of Christendom. Let me say that. Don't mishear me in all of that. That era when the church ruled this nation, when we preached and we made the rules and we decided. Because looking back, we kind of rose-tinted spectacles. But as I have read the rise and fall of Christian Ireland, what I see in it is a church that has had little pockets at times where we've 
maybe been getting there. But for the, the most of it, we have not been a genuine representation of God's heart. We haven't. Shouting and roaring at people and lecturing people about what is wrong in their lives while we've been committing that very sin that we're calling out. It's not okay. We locked up parks and swings so that people would obey our rules. We abused and we hurt those who were meant to be under our care. We used God as some slogan in a political battle to say that he was on our side. It's not okay. That was never his heart. None of that. So we are not getting called back to the days of Christendom. We're getting called into something that is so beautiful. We've never even tasted it yet. That is the Kairos invitation in this moment. And you know who he's speaking to when he speaks primarily God in Jeremiah? Before we get into today's passage, I need to say this. He is speaking to God's people. He is calling out God's people. He's calling out, you'll see this, the descendants of Jacob, the clans of Israel. This is not the general whosoever. This is his people. This challenge that we have in Jeremiah church is for us. If you came away from last week and you were thinking, yeah, they need to hear this. Or so-and-so needs to hear this. Or, yeah, the world needs this. You missed the point. We need a church. We need this revival inside of us to be a representation that is genuine to the Lord's heart. That's who we are called to be. But something has gone awry inside of us. Something has taken God's people, the church in this land, like the people of God and like Israel here. This is why this resonates with us. To a place where the Lord has been forsaken. That's where we're going today. My people, they have forsaken me. My people, us, the church. So let's get into this. Jeremiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember your devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not yet sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. But notice, <laughs> hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob. All you clans of Israel, this is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. That's enough for the moment. The first five verses, what a challenge. Something has happened that this beautiful marriage between God and his people that was meant to be a covenant relationship, the honeymoon period is over and something has happened that it's leading towards what will be divorce. The honeymoon period is over and divorce is on the horizon. What has gone wrong? I think there are some things we can learn from the people of Israel this morning that we need to hear and will stop us from making the same, the same problem or 
that will lead us into where we're going next week. How do we get back? We have to realize where we are at. And we can learn some things from us. So I want to poke the fire a little bit this morning because I believe there's embers are still there of what is a true and genuine faith. And all we want to do is allow Holy Spirit to flame those into life. And so as we read, I wonder, did you notice the first thing? See, in Jeremiah 2, what we see is a slippery slope. It's a slippery slope down. And the first thing that happens in verse 5, what fault did your ancestors find from me? Oh, here we go. What fault did your ancestors find in me? The first thing we see is we have the potential to go down a slope is fault. Israel were constant fault finders, okay? You'll see that if you read right throughout the Old Testament. Israel to this point had been freed from slavery. They were set free, freedom. Do you get it? They had this taste of freedom as they were walking with the Lord through the wilderness. And what happens? They start to find fault with them. Oh, Lord, we don't have enough food. You brought us out from a place where we had food and now we don't have any. Oh, Lord, what, what, what are you doing? You brought us out here to what? To die? How dare you, God? And they started to worship all our idols. And then when he took them through the wilderness and he got them into the promised land itself into Canaan, this land that was filled with rich, abundant fruit, this land that would be theirs, what did they say? Oh, but you're, you haven't given us a king, Lord. We want our own king. They constantly find fault the people of Israel. I was singing about it this week. My mum used to have this song on in the house. Um, it went, grumble on a Monday, grumble on a Tuesday. We grumble the whole week through. And we're like that. That's what the people of Israel were like. They grumbled each day of the week. Why? Because they were focusing on what they didn't have instead of realizing they had the God of abundance with them, his presence with them, his love with them. I want to challenge us because we have an inbuilt propensity within ourselves to find fault. When life gets tough, it's something that's been happening since the beginning of this book, the beginning of time. When in the Garden of Eden, what's Adam and Eve do? They point the fault at other people. It's not my fault. And so we have this inbuilt propensity to find the fault, particularly in a God who it's easy to find fault with because he's in control and it's his fault. Even those who don't believe in Jesus, atheists, they'll find fault in him. That makes sense. And I get it's a very common reaction to grief and to loss and to hurt and to pain. It's natural. It's part of the grief cycle. We touched on this at Skeptics Cafe. It's the first part in the grief cycle where we find anger and blame. Something happens and we blame him. And I get it. I've been there. Let me tell you something. I'm not preaching to you as someone who has not been challenged on this himself. See, I grew up quite, a, quite an angry young man in my teens because while I was growing up, by the time I had reached seven years of age, I had lost three of my best mates. One to childhood cancer, one who was drowned in a sewage works, and another who was knocked down getting off the school bus. And I couldn't make sense of it. Why would this God that we hear about in Sunday school take my friends? 
And then as life continued to grow, this anger just became more and more and more because we'd grown up in the troubles and our family personally affected by that. And because of that and financial troubles that we had growing up, then we had to move into the town. I lost everything that was secure and safe to me. Who did I blame? God, I walked away from church at that point in my teens, blaming him. Life wasn't meant to be like this. Self-medicated, turned away from him, found my own ways to try and deal with it. And then I met Zoe and we lost a number of children through miscarriage. And at this point, the anger really came out against the Lord because there was a point where even when I had turned back to God in all of that, it was still happening. And in the middle of Tomore Concrete, where I was working at the time, I kicked wooden crates to pieces and I was angry at God. Why? Because I just thought it was his fault. And then I can remember this moment when something began to shift and I could see that all I was doing at this time was putting a barrier between experiencing his love and his comfort and his healing. I had put that barrier there. And that's a lot of heart stuff that's there. And I get that that is really difficult, difficult issues for you. And if you want to talk about that, we don't have time to go even deeper into that this morning. Um, when we run Skeptics Cafe again later in the year, if you want to talk about this stuff, you're more than welcome to come along. What I would say is, we have a God who knows what it is like to go through rejection, to go through pain and suffering. Why? So that he can say to us, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I, I have overcome the world. And so I encourage you, if you want to begin to talk to someone about that this morning, or have someone pray with you, we don't have all the answers in that. It won't just be fixed overnight. It's not even about fixing, it's learning how you journey with those things, continually offering them up to him and experiencing more of his love and more of his healing and more of his presence. That's what will make the difference. If I encourage you, don't let that fault become a slippery slope for us this morning, church. Because what ends up happening is then they stray so far. When we put up a barrier, you stray so far. What happens? You begin to put distance between yourself and God. And the people of Israel had started to put distance between themselves and God. He calls it out. He says, you're so far from me. What's wrong? Why do you not want to be close to me? Where is that relationship we had? When we were experiencing freedom and journeying together through a land that was not so own. And I use that word that I'm, a, I'm about to mention here, a word, fade. I use that word intentionally. Why? Because they end up following, what? Worthless idols. You know what that word worthless is? Hevel. Where did we hear of Havel before when we did the series on Ecclesiastes and John Mark introduced us to this word Havel? It means a vape, a mist, something that just fades away. We can't catch it. And so what ends up happening is our love, as we chase after these other things, which we're going to get to in a minute, as we chase after them, our love for him fades. Why? Because we found a fault in him. And for some of us, it may not start with fault, but we are a people who are prone to wander, to have our heads turned. And the people of Israel, we see it 
They turn so far away from God that he calls them out later in Jeremiah and he says, from having this faithful relationship, they've become brazen prostitutes who refuse to blush with shame. They don't even realize it, how far they've walked away from him. And it is so easy for us, church, to do the same. I'm not talking about the people out there. I'm talking about us as a church. So easy for us to get away from what his heart and what his attention, his intention is for us, from his love. Why? Because we're just sheep. Why do you think he calls us sheep? Isaiah 53, we're sheep that goes astray so easily. Why is he the good shepherd? Why are these analogies there? It's because we're like them. Have you ever watched sheep going through a field? I remember walking through a field with my granda as he was tending sheep up a Bracarelli direction. And I remember seeing it. It sticks out of my mind. This one, it was just an old yo that saw this hole in the field. And suddenly it goes. And the rest of them are all running afterwards. Why? Because one of those have been distracted. And because of the Gregarian instinct that's in them, they all follow. You know what happens to us, church, when we get distracted by things that are not of the Lord? There's propensity for more of us to follow the same direction. Distracted by voices in our society that appear to be Christian and appear to have Christian values, but they are nothing like our Lord. Nothing. You need to hear that. Why we sing in that song, come thou fount of every blessing, we are prone to wander. But he is the great shepherd. You see, this is the beautiful thing about a shepherd. If the sheep keep their eye on the shepherd, they will follow in the direction they're meant to go. And they, won't be avo- they will avoid the distractions. That's why he's calling us back to church. Fixing our eyes on him. Not just as a church and doing more stuff individually. Fixing our eyes on him in our every day. And we'll touch on that a little bit more next week. You see, the distraction is the enemy of devotion. Distraction is the enemy of devotion. We live in a world that is constantly vying for our attention, church. I saw... You know me, I love a wee stat or two. Um, It's the finance side of me and how the mind works. But I find it fascinating. Where do you hear these figures? The average Netflix user, 15 hours per week. That's fact, 15 hours per week. Those who are on YouTube, 2 hours and 17 minutes weekly. Social media, 16 hours and 48 minutes a week on average. Some are more, some are less. Podcasts, seven hours a week. Reading, three and a half hours a week. Hobbies, on average, four hours and 13 minutes per week. Do you see where I'm going with this? We are getting distracted and distracted and distracted, having our heads turned by things that inherently aren't bad things. It's good to switch off. All I want to ask us, and I am not going back, do not mishear me in this. This is not about going back to the legalistic Christendom era. I am just simply asking us the question, What are we doing? How are we spending our time to get closer to him? Are we growing in our devotion or are we just being distracted more and more and more? And again, I tell you this story. Not, please, do not. This is not about me boasting about this. This is where I've been deeply challenged and I've tasted and saw something. And I want this for each of you. My challenge was social media. 
And two years ago, the Lord spoke to me, just simply to me. I wouldn't preach this as a way of life. For me, social media, something has to change, Ricky. And as he, as I removed my social media accounts, what I began to realize was this beautiful intimacy with the Lord. What I was doing when I was on social media, I got distracted by good things. You know what it was? It was preachers and little snippets of little things from all over the world. Good things, right? But you know what God began to speak to me about in all of this? In the Bible, he is a God of place. And so when he speaks to the church he's in, Phil, in Philippians, he's speaking to the church in Philippi. He speaks to the church in uh, Thessalonica. He speaks to the church who are in Rome. He speaks to a people who are in a place together. Why? Because that's always been his intention. He says the same message, maybe, but usually it's got a different slant on it or it's a different message for them. And what I have felt challenged on that is, and again, this is just my story, I feel like we can get so focused on what God is speaking through his servants in California or in Carlisle or in Canberra or in Canada. And what he is saying is for his bride there. Now, I am not saying there are not prophetic voices who are speaking into the nations. Yes, there are. But primarily, someone who is teaching a congregation, a church family is saying what they believe is for them. And when I focus on what's happening in California or Carlisle or Canberra or Canada, I miss what God is speaking over this area in Coleraine. I miss the invitation into what he is doing here amongst us, what he wants to do through us. I miss when we hear something from the front on a sharing time. I miss when we hear something in home group that challenges. Why? Because I've been so distracted by a preacher from somewhere else that is speaking good stuff, but it's for the church there. If we are meant to grow in our love together, there is this propensity that we can feed together. And MCF, I am challenging us. Let's get Hearing the voice of the Lord for here. Not what other people have told you all around the world. Here, as we grow together in our home groups and our sharing times and our sermons and our individual conversations with each other in the coffee shop. What's he doing? What's he up to? There's a beautiful invitation for us to taste and see him like we've never done before. Let's get back into the passage. See, what we see is as the Israelites find fault in him and as their love begins to fade towards worthless Havel, they begin to forget him. And we see that. Oh, that's how it clickers away with it, is it? If you bring it back to the slope there, Emily, would you? Verses 6 and 7. Let's see where we're at of chapter 2. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you, the Lord says, I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. You know what ends up happening when we find fault and we begin to fade? We forget all about him and what he's done for us and what he has brought us through in the past and what he has said to us already. 
Why? Because distraction. The people of Israel had been brought out of Egypt. This is what the Lord is trying to remind them of here. They have been brought out of a land where they were slaves into a land of rich abundance where the Lord would provide for every one of their needs. And they had forgotten this. See, it says they. You know who that is? The clans of Israel, the descendants of Jacob. You see it later down. The priests, those who deal with the law, the leaders, the prophets. This is God's people forgot who he was. It's not about this nation forgetting who God really is. We've forgotten who he really is, church. We've forgotten what he has done for us. Is it any wonder why in Psalm 103, the Lord says, praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Why? Because we need to speak to ourselves. Let's not forget what he has done for us. Why do you think as we read through scripture, we see moments like in 1 Samuel when the Lord has given the Israelites victory over the Philistines. He says to him, build a pile of stones. And every time you come past that, you'll remember what? That I gave you the victory. Why do you need to do that? Because they'll forget about it. Why do you think we do this every Sunday? We have a propensity to make it about ourselves or to come with all our issues. And we forget that we have a God who can bring us through them. Who can heal, who can bring comfort, who can be present, who has done something on the cross and said, it is finished. You don't need to add anything to this. Just remember what I have done. That's why we have it, because we are prone to forget. We forget so easily. I wonder, MCF, what are the moments that we don't talk about anymore where the Lord provided for us? as a church family, where he moved in his power in this church family, when there were faithful, faithful people who'd gone before us, who stepped out in faith and the Lord provided and brought us to this point. Do we ever stop to be thankful for that? What do we need to remind ourselves about the Lord and what he has done for us. And I just want to challenge us with this. If you can't think of anything to be thankful for this morning. Then you're probably further down this slope than you care to realize. And I encourage you to get back. And so we arrive lastly. At the, the end of the slope. Verses 11 to 13. If you can Emily you can bring these up says, but my people, this is in the second half of verse 11, but my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord, because my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God's people had forsaken him. You know what that means? They had left or abandoned him. They had divorced him. But more than that, they were turning towards these cisterns that were broken, worthless idols like Baal and Asherah and Moloch, holding on to them. And we have that same propensity. This is all too familiar to us. We have the same propensity in our world 
to put idols in our hearts, something that takes his place, and that can be good things. <laughs> good things like our jobs or our families or other people or even ourselves, our church. I want to speak to us for a moment for something that God really highlighted to me in this that I think is unique for us as a wee nation here. And he was speaking to the Israelites way back then. Something that's really relevant for today. You know what their idols included? We do hear this. This is later on in chapter 2, verse 27. It says, They say to the wood, you are my father. And they say to the stone, you give me birth. <laughs> How common is that in our wee country? Where we've grown up with this division where everyone thinks they're right. Both sides of the community think they're right. You know what they've been following? Both sides. Worthless idols. Wood. What are we burning bonfires in July? <laughs> What's the song that we sing? It's about a something that my, what, my father wore. <laughs> what about those stone idols we talk about in the other side of the community? <laughs> Stone idols. To what? A mother. A virgin mother. Can I call this out really importantly? It's why I love what God did in this little fellowship way back 40 years ago. It's not about being Protestant or Catholic. It's about being devoted followers of Jesus. Not following worthless idols that will lead you into worthlessness. They'll disappear. We need to get our eyes fixed back on him because later on in chapter 3 he says you've defiled the land and committed adultery with these stone and wood idols. It defiles the land. It makes his inheritance detestable. And we've done the same. We need healing on this land. Come on. We've turned away from the source of living water. The spring of living water. And we've dug cisterns for ourselves. You know what a cistern is? It's a big underground storage water unit. It's the opposite of a spring. It needs rainwater to go into it and to fill it up. You know what happens? As soon as you begin to gather that water, it becomes stagnant. It becomes defiled. We're so guilty of that, aren't we, church? Oh, flip, time's running away. We're so guilty of that. I'll fix myself. And I'm speaking to us as the church. Oh, I'll just fix myself. I met with God once. That'll do. And now I'll just feed off this broken cistern for the rest of my life. Stagnant water. Return to him. Don't know about that. That's just for the weirdos. As a church, our church is in the land. Instead of returning to fresh living water, we have relied on programs and structures to get us through. Would our churches look any different if God removed his presence or Holy Spirit? I don't think they would. And I felt particularly challenged by this. Even as the church, we look back to moments where we saw the spring of living water evidently pouring out his life-giving water in this land in moments of revival. But you know what ends up happening? We build cisterns around it. We write books about what happened. We put together five steps to see revival. We see and put a, a plaque on a town hall. You know what the plaque says? This is my words and all of this. There was once a spring of living water here. Hey, what happened? 
Did God stop the supply? Not a chance. You know what happened? We took our eyes off him. On the broken cisterns. Cisterns that are defiled. Cisterns that are broken. That are stagnant. And I don't know about you, but I want to challenge us, church, that we will be a church not to be better than anyone else. Like, let's, let's, let's see this as something that God is calling us into, to be a church who will return daily to the spring of living water. We don't have to rely on just looking back to a Sunday morning. We can meet with him in our everyday. Have his living water poured out on us afresh. This land needs it. It needs a spring of living water pouring out. I need to finish here. That rest of that can wait till next week. We sometimes want to rush into just tell me what to do. What I want to challenge us with is to sit for another week with the consider, with the lament, with the challenge. Not think about anyone else. Think about yourself. I want to do this. Hold me accountable in this. That we would consider before we get to solutions and the blessing next week. Last week we considered how far have you fallen? You've lost your first love. Repent, return to me. We've not just lost our love. If this works, you bring up the last slide, Emily. Verse 19 is where I want to finish that. You're says, consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord God and what? Have no awe of me. We haven't just lost our first love. We've lost our awe. We've lost our wonder. We've lost this idea of, wow, God. We constantly need to be entertained. We constantly need to consume more content. We constantly need to be distracted. Why? Because it would be awkward to just sit with the Lord, the spring of living water, and just drink from him. But here's the thing, if we do that, we won't just see our love restored MCF. We're going to see our awe and our wonder at him restored. You know what gives me hope for that? I remember, I will finish with this, the second, see this, um, this place here, this is a place I return to in Port Stewart when I need to get a grasp of his awe and his wonder to look at the sea. I remember during the second lockdown, October 2021, and we were out prayer walking in Port Stewart. Aren't we so spiritual? Yeah, I know. We were out prayer walking in Port Stewart. I remember it coming on the news. The lockdown was coming that day. And you could see it in everyone's faces. Oh, again, are we going back there? But you know what happened? This little moment where the Lord restored the awe and the wonder of everyone who was on the promenade that day, whether they followed Jesus or they didn't. Because he brought the dolphins into the bay like I have never seen them so close before. And you know what the cry that I heard? And those who were out prayer walking can testify to this. Everyone went, wow. They marveled at his creation. They marveled at the majesty of God. And I long for that. And I pray that that is what we're going to see in this land. So you know what we've got to do? We've got to do it right now. Let's pray. If you want to have someone to pray with you, pray there. If you want to sit in your seat and pray, pray there. If you want to get the person beside you to pray with you, come on church. We can't leave here without this sense of being okay, that we don't have more of his love or we're okay with not having that awe of who he is. So we're going to pray, Lord, 
Thank you for your word. Thank you for the majesty of who you are. Thank you for the magnitude of who you are. Thank you that you are marvelous in your being alone, even before you've even done anything for us, just who you are. You speak and creation happens. Lord, may I and may we be a people who have our awe and our love for you restored in abundance. Why do I ask that, Lord? Because as Gordon Knox used to remind us, you're the God of the immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. We are living in the days of a new covenant that is so much better than what we even read of here in Jeremiah. So you can, you can show us more of your love and more of your awe and ever. We need it, Lord. So break down the barriers of our heart, tear down the walls and lay the foundations for us to be a people who are faithful to you, a church that is faithful to you. We pray it in Jesus' name, asking for your help. Amen.